This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we turn our sights to South Korea and a Hawaii doctor at the International Vaccine Institute, also known as the IVI. It was established by the World Health Organization almost 25 years ago. Dr. Jerome Kim has served as the Director General of the Institute since early, 19, uh, early 2015. Kim, who hails from Kaneohe, graduated from Iolani School, attended the University of Hawaii, became an army doctor and moved in global circles before landing in Seoul, South Korea. We talked with him just as the COVID case counts in Hawaii yesterday hit more than 4,000 and surpassed that of South Korea, whose population, by the way, is close to 52 million. That country stepped up early to manage the pandemic with masking, social distancing, testing, and contact tracing strategies. Here's Dr. Kim. IVI, the International Vaccine Institute, is the first international organization headquartered in South Korea. And it was founded in 1997 as an initiative of the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP, after a successful bid by the Korean government to host the institute. So we're located in Seoul, south of the Han River. I don't know if people are familiar with Seoul, near Seoul National University, actually at the back gate to Seoul National University, which is a beautiful spot. IVI has now just under 200 employees and representing 23 different nationalities. And we develop vaccines for global health. And that means, in general, that we are developing vaccines that that big companies like Pfizer and Merck would never want to develop because the only people who would use these vaccines are people in low- and middle-income countries, so people who can't pay $100 a dose for a vaccine. Now, we developed a cholera vaccine, which is now 90% of the vac- cholera vaccine used around the world, and it costs a dollar and thirty cents. Now, IVI doesn't manufacture the vaccine. We develop it. We test it. We help the company. We transfer technology to the company without a patent. They make the vaccine. They develop the what we call cost of goods, and that vaccine is then used by international health agencies to deal with cholera outbreaks around the world. So that's been our model. But at the same time, we also work on vaccines where equity is a problem, and it turns out that. You know, equity is a problem for many of the vaccines that Americans take for granted. The vaccine against rotavirus diarrhea, which we give to kids, was approved in the U.S. in 2006. Fifteen years later, in 2021, even though 100 countries have it as a recommended vaccine, 60% of the world's children don't receive it. So we are trying to address these kinds of issues in equity. And with COVID, as we've seen, the same issue applies. People in the United States have significant access to vaccines, but people in sub-Saharan Africa are still 93% unvaccinated. There's a lot of work to do, and and IVI decided for COVID we were going to help everybody. Any organization that needed help developing a vaccine, we could use what we do uh, to accelerate their development process. And so we worked with 26 different uh, organizations, companies, universities, philanthropies to try to accelerate vaccines for for COVID-19. And I did see that uh, South Korea has just agreed to uh, bring in the the pills. Yes, so South Korea, their approach has been a little bit more integrated. And if you think that, so I'm retired U.S. military, right? So the first line of defense is, is masks and distancing, crowd avoidance that we know prevents infection. Vaccines also uh, provide a little bit of protection against infection, although really they're the second line of defense. They're the thing that prevents and maybe we scientists didn't do a good job communicating. The vaccines were designed and tested originally to prevent mild to moderate PCR-positive disease. Almost all the vaccine trials were done that way. So it wasn't prevention of infection, but what we were trying to do to 
develop vaccines that kept people from having uh, symptomatic disease and progressing to severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So that's what vaccines do. So they're the second line of defense. The third line, of course, is providing treatment to people who are um, who acquire COVID infection despite masks, distancing, and vaccination. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of, I mean, we had remdesivir, which was an, uh, something you had to give parenterally, uh, but we really didn't have something oral and convenient uh, that was specifically against COVID. I mean, we had dexamethasone, which is a very powerful steroid. You know, we could treat people, uh, but we didn't really have stuff that we could give a person conveniently. Monoclonal antibodies, again, have to be given um, parenterally. They have to be injected. So the development of these new uh, oral agents, uh, particularly uh, Paxlovid, if the the short-term data also correspond to the longer-term data, uh, look very good, very promising for prevention of progression. Of disease, which is exactly what you want to do. You, you need to keep the hospitals uh, operating, and if in during you know a surge, the hospitals unfortunately become full. And so Paxlovid has a very important, or um, Molnupiravir as well, have a very important role in this. But both of those drugs require that people be diagnosed. So again, you know, a shortage of kits, which is what what the U.S. is experiencing now, is something. You know, that may impair our ability to give the right drug. For instance, the monoclonal antibodies, many of them don't work against Omicron. And unless we have a diagnostic kit, a, a way to tell um, the older Delta infection from the newer Omicron infection, doctors don't uh, really know uh, what a person can receive or what a person, uh, what a person will respond to. So again, these are you can see how the problems are related. And then the fourth line of defense is actually... All those things governments can do. Good communication, the use of vaccine passports or, or vaccine passes, you know, having to show that you're vaccinated in order to go to a, a movie theater or to a, to a restaurant, or restricting the number of people who can eat together in a restaurant. So in Korea now, restaurants close at 9 o'clock, maximum of four people. They all have to have the vaccine certificate. Um, there are exceptions for children, uh, of course, but increasingly there's going to be a push to ensure that everyone who is within vaccinated age, be able to show uh, an electronic certificate. And the certificates expire after six months. So you actually have to, the government is already planning or thinking that maybe we will need to uh, boost people again. With these pills, you know, the COVID-19 pills, they're obviously in high demand and short supply at this juncture, you know, and then there's the, the, the equity issue that you bring up. You know, how do you make this available? Who do you make it available to first? I think one of the things that unfortunately will uh, distinguish those who get it first is a second equity gap, right? There is an equity gap with vaccines. We know there's an equity gap with medication. So, you know, you can get medicines in the United States that aren't necessarily available, sometimes because of cost, but also sometimes for important medicines because of um, lack of production at, at an early stage. And then finally, there's a lack of diagnostic testing. So if we go to Sub-Saharan Africa, the number of tests they do per 100,000 population is is negligible compared to what's going on in the United States or in South Korea. And not being able to test someone also, in a sense, means that you're not going to be able to treat them. Yeah, so these equity gaps are a big problem. And we have test kits. We know we can make them. We know we can distribute them. And there's a good reason to do it now because of the medication. Medicines are different from vaccines. With a vaccine, it's difficult for a, an organization to make a copy vaccine 
unless it really is a true vaccine development organization that understands the quality processes that go into each step of vaccine manufacturing. So mRNA vaccines are said to have 50,000 steps, and all of those are quality. Drugs are different. They're chemical. So the criteria for making a high-quality drug is different. And so, for instance, the, the Merck drug, Molnupiravir, there are in Indian companies making it under an emergency um, authorization. So a country can declare an emergency, and a company in that country can make it for its own use. So there are, for drugs, a slightly different barrier than for vaccines. And we will have more of our conversation with Dr. Jerome Kim right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org On the next Fresh Air, we remember Betty White and listen to our interview recorded in 1987 when she was starring in The Golden Girls. And we remember Joan Didion with a couple of interviews, including one about her National Book Award-winning memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking, about the loss of her husband, writer John Gregory Dunn. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Le Jardin Academy, celebrating 60 years, announcing a virtual open house for grades preschool through high school Saturday, January 22nd. Registration at lejardinacademy.org. we learn about the pandemic response from our Pacific neighbors. For that, we turn to South Korea and a Hawaii doctor who has spent the last six years as head of the International Vaccine Institute. Today, Hawaii's COVID positivity rate is pushing close to 22%. Oahu is near 24%. Maui, more than 22%. And Big Island and Kauai, all in double-digit territory. We pick up our conversation with global vaccine expert Dr. Jerome Kim about what we can learn from South Korea. And so can you talk about the different lines of defense? You know, you mentioned, you know, the testing and the distancing. And Korea, like I said, instituted um, a, a number of these measures early on, you know, contact tracing, that kind of thing. I guess we kind of look to South Korea. You know, what, what are the lessons learned? What can we apply here in Hawaii? Korea actually had the advantage or the disadvantage of having a prior outbreak in 2015, there was a different coronavirus called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Now, of course, Korea is not in the Middle East. But as I was getting to Korea, as I was just starting to work at, at IVI, a person from Korea had visited the Middle East and came back with a coronavirus infection, MERS, uh, that we acquire from camel. So bat to camel, camel to uh, human being, human being, one human being to another. The advantage for MERS, well, the disadvantage is that it's a, a bit more lethal. 30 to 40% of people who contract it die. 
um, but it's less transmissible. Again, very good thing um, for something so lethal. But a Korean acquired it and then spread it um, to other people in Korea. So there was a, a fairly large outbreak. Several hundred people got infected. I think 36 to 37 people died, which is very unfortunate. But they tried to do, you know, this system of uh, isolating, tracking. I mean, there were at one point um, during that pandemic outbreak, there were 20,000 people in quarantine. Um, so you can see that system kind of um, was, was working. But in fact, there was a lot of crit- criticism. And you know, the government found that when they talked to people about where they'd been, people would lie, wouldn't tell the truth, or wouldn't remember, which is the same. And um, so in 2016 and 17, they started to think about the laws that they needed in order to be able to you know, deal better with outbreaks. And by 2017, they passed a law that allowed the government, under certain circumstances, like they have to declare an emergency, um, to access videotape footage from security cameras, uh, credit card information, and um, and also to, under certain circumstances, again, be able to know where your cell phone was. And the companies actually are required to keep that information for 30 days, and then they delete it. So, you know, coronavirus outbreaks typically, you know, five to with Omicron, it's three days, but so they figured, well, 30 days seems reasonable because, you know, if we see an outbreak somewhere or, or figure it out a week later, it's going to be important to be able to collect information on, you know, who might have been there in very crowded settings. And so they used all of that. And in fact, one of the initial cases was a person who came back from China and, you know, had met with someone, had met with a person who wasn't his spouse and didn't want to let people know. But in fact, the credit card information then confirmed with uh, security camera footage um, really did suggest that he had visited multiple locations and that there were and there were cases re- related to that. So, you know, the the ability to do this came out of a previous exercise, a previous pandemic or re- epidemic where the response was not considered optimal. So they learned from previous mistakes. And, and I think that uh, helped them. In fact, December of 2019, they had a tabletop exercise. So, you know, kind of the thing that the military does. They presumed that a, a man and a woman uh, were returning from a, a vacation in China with an upper respiratory infection. This is in December of 2019. And so they, you know, they collect everyone, they plan the response, they, you know, talk to academics, people at universities, and they, you know, they did this exercise. And of course, a month later, we had COVID. Mm. By, you know, of course, it was not related, but it indicates the kind of preparation that the Ministry of Health, the Korea Center for Disease Control uh, was doing in order to be sure that it was ready to respond to the pandemic. As far as advice that you would give our uh, leaders today as we grapple with this latest phase, with this highly contagious, possibly, you know, a milder form of uh, COVID-19, what would you say? It's a little different in the United States because, you know, in Korea and Australia or New Zealand, countries that were successful in controlling this, really there is a unified system of public health. So in actually in Australia, which is a federal system like the U.S., they actually brought the individual um, state governors into the cabinet as a part of the emergency response. So to make sure that the state and, and national governments were, were unified. We wouldn't see that in the United States, or we didn't see that in the United States. In Korea, again, because of a, it's a smaller country, it's easier to get a unified, you know, from the top the people actually doing the checking and tracing and calling you up to make sure you're staying at home. Mm-hmm. Everyone has the same message. And that 
probably is not possible in the United States. So that's, I think, one of the big failures of this, the way our system is organized, which doesn't allow for uniform messaging, you know, the same messages in Hawaii that you get in Texas. It starts with messaging and, and organization. You know, we talk about command, control, communication, and intelligence. And, and again, you know, the, with the Korean government, you know, with the PCR test being uh, early, available very early and in sufficient quantity, uh, it was possible to set up systems where you were tested in the morning and by if you were tested in the morning, by the afternoon you had a result. Back in March of 2020, so two years ago, uh, when we were still in the United States struggling getting uh, a test a test kit that worked, you know, in Korea they had three that were approved back in February. So they were developed very rapidly. They were manufactured very rapidly. They were approved by the, by the ministries for, for use. And they formed an essential part of the response. So again, you know, having test kits available very early on, having a plan that could be implemented throughout the country, having prepared for uh, a pandemic in terms of response and who's responsible for what. And, you know, this is something where when the government declares an emergency, depending on the level, the chair of the response is the prime minister or the health minister. And, you know, that allows you to really centralize messaging and uh, control over what the government is doing. I'm not sure if that would be possible in the United States. You'd almost have to deputize the departments of public health under a, you know, maybe under the CDC or some other organization. Right. So that's um, the big and, difference. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. and, it, and it would be a difficult political lift, I think. You know, Korea did this and, and did all the changes in its laws that allowed it to use cell phone information, not during a pandemic when, you know, tempers are, are high mm-hmm. and, and, and politics um, could be very difficult. They did it in the period after the pandemic, after you know, a very serious consideration of what the flaws were in the original response. The person who's in charge of KDCA now was actually a part of the response to MERS, and it shows the way that the ministry learned. So, you know, in the past, the Korean government had been doing all the testing, but now as these um, test kits are available, you know, people can do testing at home. And, you know, Omicron for them, you know, it isn't the predominant isolate yet. You know, it will be, but you know, they because of the quarantines. When you come in, you're on 10 days of quarantine, either at home, and they have this app oh, on your cell phone that if you step outside the door, if you don't touch your cell phone for a long period of time, they assume that you're you're doing something you shouldn't, so they call you. My daughter was just in quarantine, so she knows that if they, she doesn't touch her phone for a certain number of hours, a person at the local health center will say, "We're just." calling to check, make sure that you and your phone are close to each other. Wow. So, but they, they still have uh, strict quarantines, though. A pretty strict quarantine. If, In fact, if you're not Korean, if you're a foreigner and you're found violating quarantine, you can be uh, sent out of the country. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty serious about it. And again, with delays, things like it delayed Delta entering the country significantly. It will delay Omicron. But at some point, you know, it, it kind of, there are laws in the system and, and people will get exposed and then spread it to others. So they will see Omicron. And testing is very important. It helps us to understand where it is. It gets people into the healthcare system. And again, you know, they're tracking the number of ICU beds and uh, hospital u- utilization, people on home care. You know, the government has integrated the system um, fairly well into a national system of response. Again, things that governments can do. You know, Hawaii has a very unique and particular geography that sets it apart from the United States. People actually have to go there. Uh, it's not like being in Connecticut and being able to drive to New York or being able to drive to Massachusetts. 
you have to fly or take a boat to Hawaii. And you know, as an island, Hawaii has been um, subject to outbreaks. I mean, outbreaks of infectious diseases wiped out the native Hawaiian population. And th- this is just a story from some of the other people that we work with. You know, IVI is working in Fiji, mm-hmm. another island nation. And um, in Fiji, the population was wiped out by measles. And so remember, there was a, a measles outbreak in the United States. Well, there were measles outbreaks all over the world uh, from unvaccinated or undervaccinated people. And the government of Fiji decided it needed to revaccinate people. And so they, they started this massive campaign of vaccination and said, you don't want to happen what happened before when Fiji's, mm-hmm. Fijians were wiped out by measles. Get vaccinated. And the person who ran the program told me, well, you know, we were getting people who were old enough to have had measles calling up and insisting that they needed their shot. Big difference in response. But it's important to remember that, you know, um, Hawaii is very unique. And and there are populations on the islands um, that haven't been vaccinated or are reluctant to be vaccinated. And, you know, increasingly, even with Omicron, we recognize that it may not prevent infection that well, but the vaccines do prevent hospitalization and death. That was Hawaii Dr. Jerome Kim, who is now Director General of the International Vaccine Institute based in Seoul, South Korea. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, o'ahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We'll be talking to Kapa'a High School coach Mike Tressler later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we are testing you on Hawaii's football history. Today, the Hawaii High School Athletic Association oversees the three-division state football tournament every fall. The larger schools and perennial powerhouses like Kahuku and St. Louis play in the open division, while smaller Oahu schools and neighbor island schools are distributed between Division One and Division Two. In 2021, Kahuku, Iwalani, and Kapa'a all emerged as state champions in their respective divisions. But it wasn't always like that. The official state championship tournament was instituted only in 1999. Before that, there was no official system to determine the best high school football team in the state. We did, however, have the Prep Bowl pitting the best Oahu public high school football team against the best team from Oahu's private schools. The winner was largely seen as the unofficial state champion, even though neighbor island teams weren't eligible to play. The Prep Bowl was played until 1998 when St. Louis claimed the 13th victory in a row. You may remember that streak. But for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us who won the very first Prep Bowl in 1993 or 1973? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story today about how the Army has said no to an event planned by the Republican Party of Hawaii. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us for our reality check. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine, and Aloha Friday. Aloha Friday. Aren't we happy it's Aloha Friday? It's been we a are. long we week. Well, yes. so you're... It's been a long... It's been a long year. Yes, a long year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was intrigued by your story today. Uh, a, a really interesting reality check. Uh, tell our listeners uh, about what you discovered. Yeah, thank you. And I and I should just clarify: uh, it's not the Hawaii Republican Party; it's the Honolulu County uh, Republican Party. In other words, the the Oahu chapter of, of the larger party. But they had a fundraiser. They still have one scheduled for tomorrow. And it was to be held at Schofield Barracks at a restaurant. Restaurant 604 is what it's called. Uh, and they were advertising it on their website. Uh, it was being circulated. That's how we found out about it. Somebody sent us a link. Uh, but it turns out that the commander there at the base uh, did not want this political event to be held on base. There are restrictions on that. So I checked with Brett Colbus. He's the chair of the Honolulu County Republican Party. And he confirmed that the base commander uh, ordered the fundraiser to be held elsewhere. Uh, Colbus did not disclose where that will be held, but there's another twist to this, and that's the guest that the uh, Honolulu County Republican Party is featuring at this fundraiser. His name is Scott Pressler, and, and if you read the story, there's a, there's a lot of reporting out there about his controversial background. Yes, and uh, his... His name is uh, not new to uh, uh, Hawaii residents. He he was here, you know, part of last year uh, in a number of events. Right. In fact, on his Facebook page yesterday, uh, Scott Pressler, and that's with uh, one S in Pressler, uh, posted that he was actually in Hilo last night and was going to be speaking on uh, voter engagement, getting people to run for office and election integrity. Uh, somewhere in Hilo. Actually, he included an address. I don't know the name of the facility. He was also wearing this T-shirt in the video. It's probably still up. Last I checked, uh, his Facebook page hadn't been changed. But he's wearing a T-shirt that he says, uh, says, let's go, Brandon, but it's translated into Hawaiian. Now, I, I, I don't speak Hawaiian well enough to know whether that translation is accurate. But for those of us who know, let's go, Brandon is a is a, an insult, a, a slur against President Joe Biden. And so, gosh, so so he's what a controversial figure in some sort. Well, I think the thi- yeah, this is what comes up the most is, and it's a simple Google search, and you'll find plenty of clips. Uh, Pressler is identified as having been a, a former top strategist for an anti-Muslim group, a group that has actually held activities, marches. Uh, Anti-Muslim is how the Southern Poverty Law Center describes him. NPR uh, had a report a few years back, 2017, on this. And then just last year, you can, as I say, Google it. His name comes up several times where he was speaking to Republican or conservative parties, New York State, for example. And that got attention, got headlines. And 
Interestingly enough, uh, in the case of uh, Albany, New York, they had to relocate, re- to had to move the uh, event elsewhere because of protest. I should also tell you that uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, a, a very prominent group, denounced uh, Pressler um, earlier this year. He spoke at the CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, where he was praised. Interestingly enough, uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations sent out a press release today noting the story, thinking uh, Schofield Barracks, the Army base there, the installation for, for moving the event, and again reiterated their view that the Scott Pressler, again, the invited guest, the, the keynote speaker, for the Honolulu County Republican Party, uh, had decided to move the event elsewhere. So, gosh, so the event is still going on somewhere, mm. although we don't know exactly where? Yeah, Brett Kolbus would not disclose. I mean, I asked him, and he said he, he wouldn't. Uh, interestingly enough, though, this may turn up. If you do hold a fundraiser of a certain dollar level, I think it's $50, you do have to report that to the State Campaign Spending Commission. Uh, so we'll see whether there is a formal filing, which would include the address of where it was held. I think you have to file it within a very short period of time, either before or right after the uh, fundraiser is held. Yeah, well, uh, your story intrigued me, and I, I jumped on the website, uh, and, and it looked like the the uh, fundraising um, uh, button was disabled. But I, the, I, link. I, <laughs> the yeah, link, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I went ahead and took a couple of screenshots beforehand because it's funny how you can write a news story and, whoa, it suddenly it disappears after it's published. But I did, in fact, uh, copy that link, and sure enough, it included fundraising donation information, how to contribute to the local party. All right. Well, we'll have to watch this one. Very interesting. <laughs> Thanks so Thank much, you, Jeff. Catherine. All sure. Righty. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Visit civilbeat.org uh, to read his story. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Duran Duran has never been afraid to embrace the sound of now. The new wave icons are back with a new album called Future Past, and the eternally and effortlessly cool Simon Laban joins me to talk about the record and drop gems like this. A future past is really the present. Deep. Duran Duran, coming up on the Next World Cafe. Beginning tonight at 8, following Left, Right, and Center. Support for the Aloha Friday Conversation comes from Naumea, Hawaii, with locally sourced gifts, clothing, and jewelry, and featuring books about Hawaii. Open daily at 10 a.m. in Ward Village, online at naumeahawaii.com.
A year ago, state lawmakers took the first step toward allowing the use of the chemical found in magic mushrooms in the treatment of serious mental illness. The legislation fell by the wayside, but there is a effort to reintroduce bills this session. HPR's Noe Tanigawa has been tracking this and joins us now. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. I don't know if you've noticed there's been so much health news going on, but over the last three years, the whole idea of psychedelic therapies has been coming into the mainstream, and this is therapies for depression and chronic mental problems that people really have been dealing with throughout. You know, even before the pandemic, the UN said that depression is the leading cause of disability around the world, and it's costing the global economy over a trillion dollars a year. This is something really big. In 2020, the Journal of the American Medical Association published results of a really limited study showing that psilocybin was effective against major depressive disorder. And the study was conducted by the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins. I mean, there are places like this now. In fact, more and more of these psychedelic therapy research centers are cropping up. Last year, Mount Sinai, New York City set one up. NYU's got one. Stanford has a psychedelic science group. In Hawaii, there have been efforts to legalize psilocybin. Last year, Chris Lee, Les Ihara, Laura Katio, uh, Miley Simabukumo were supportive of that. Senator Stanley Chen introduced a bill to legalize and study psilocybin, and he said he plans to do that again this year. A substance like psilocybin is not addictive. It doesn't have a lot of the problems that people associate with substances like cocaine or heroin. I think when lawmakers and regulators saw that psilocybin was being used on a recreational basis, they had a negative reaction to that and pulled back research on the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin. And that was a mistake. Just because something can be used recreationally doesn't mean that it's also not an extremely effective therapeutic pharmaceutical tool that we have. And those studies are going on. Massachusetts General Hospital has a Center for Neuroscience of Psychedelics, and here's their mission, to understand how psychedelics enhance the brain's capacity to change, to optimize current treatments and create new treatments for mental illness and make the term treatment resistant obsolete. Now, that's the idea that's behind the legal access moves, because you know, psilocybin is a Schedule One controlled substance currently at the federal level, but decriminalization and access is, is really expanding Oregon, Washington, California, and it's coming up again here. Of course, it'll be at the session. November, New York Times article was so interesting about how the veterans across the nation are really turning into the big backers for psychedelic therapies, and they're doing that because they say everything else has failed. I want you to meet somebody in our own community here. Stephen Anderson, Vietnam vet, 70 years old, volunteered for the army in 1970, and when he came back, he said he, he really came back to a different world. Steve's wife, Chris, was in the room when I was interviewing him, so I asked if I could talk with her, and she said after he got back from Vietnam, got married, had a son, had a full life, and then a painful relative suicide really sent him in a spiral that took a lot of self-medication until his son said, Dad, try this. So Steve had his first psilocybin session end of last summer in Maui. He met the therapist and the therapist partner. They put him in a dim room with candles and music, and he had a six-hour psychedelic experience. 
Have you ever seen someone with an aura around them? No. Well, this heightened that vibration. And uh, the vibration is what I saw when I looked at another person. I saw this beautiful vibrating sides of their face and they just looked so beautiful. Everything looked beautiful. The, the trees, the plants and everything had a vibration now uh, because of this plant that I took. Now listen to Steve Anderson's wife, Chris Anderson, describe how he was and how he's changed. There are things that he just simply wouldn't be aware of, whether it's my feelings or something that was going on with the family. He would always be on the outside, kind of on the perimeter, kind of looking in. And that wasn't the case now. Now he's he's more grateful. He's more gracious. I think he's more at peace with himself and is more open, for sure. Interesting. Mm. So... So yeah. while the 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 bill, the uh, treatment isn't legal yet, they still had access to it. They did, and many many do here in Hawaii as well. Ashley Lukens experienced this. She's co-founder of the Clarity Project, and their goal is expanding legal psychedelic therapies here in the island. She got into it in 2017 when she discovered she had brain cancer. And she thinks her psychedelic experiences helped her achieve her current cancer-free status. There are a lot of physical changes you go through, and Lucas has done both psilocybin and ayahuasca therapy, which people have called vegetable television. In Hawaii, ayahuasca ceremonies have long been a part of the sort of retreat scene, especially on Maui and Hawaii Island. I mean, there are ayahuasca shamans on Maui, Hawaii Island, here on Oahu. And when I talked, he said his business is booming on referrals from licensed medical doctors. Psychedelics are here already. The New Yorker has called ayahuasca the drug of choice for the age of kale. And, you know, we all know psilocybin grows right out of cow price there in Waimea. So it's something that maybe is worth taking a look at, uh, the legal end of it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Noe. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Aloha Friday. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Thanks so much. New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Tim Burkett, author of Nothing Holy About It. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the Zen of being just who you are. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew what high school won the very first Prep Bowl in 1973. The game was the result of a deal struck between Bill Smythe of the Oahu Interscholastic Association, the OIA, and Clay Benham of the Interscholastic League of Honolulu, the ILH. The game would pit the OIA champion, the best public high school football team, versus the ILH champ, the best private high school team. And although the bowl game did not include neighbor islands, the winner was largely considered Hawaii state champion. The game was played for 25 years, ending after the state tournament was created in 1999. And during that time, St. Louis High School played in a total of 17 prep bowls, winning an astonishing 14 times. While no other team has won the game more than three times, there is one team that has played in it a total of 14 times, winning three and tying once. If you know your high school football history, then you know we're talking about Waianae High School, the winner of the very first prep bowl in 1973, the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congratulations to our winner, Mark from Honolulu. Mark shares that he had the inside scoop. His dad, Ronald, was the head coach for the St. Louis Crusaders. Thanks so very much for calling in. And that is our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Aloha ia o vai ana Aloha ia o vai ana Aloha ia o vai ana The Kapa'a High School football team brought home Kauai's first state football championship last week. The Warriors defeated Kamehameha Schools Maui 61-7 to for the Division II title. The victory had been nearly 50 years in the making. Kapa'a High School played in four of the state Division II championship games, losing all of them. And then, on December 30th, 2021, victory. To learn more about the team's journey to the top, the conversations with Russell Subiono sat down with head coach Mike Tressler early in the week. I can only imagine that this is a very exciting time for football and for sports on Kauai. Do you feel like in the past the Kauai teams have been overlooked or underappreciated? Do you feel like this is a validation? You guys have programs that can compete with the rest of the state? That certainly does validate that for sure. But, but I think over the years, like I said, I've coached for a while here um, on the island, and we've had a lot of success through quarterfinals, semifinals, yeah. and I was making the, the championship game, but never winning that, that big game. Yeah, I, I think winning a championship like that certainly validates football here. Um, but, I, you know, there was respect out there because we, we beat some pretty good teams throughout the year. What do you think it was that finally put the team over the top? Was it the work that the players put in? Was it the, the right mix of talent on the team? Was it a coaching adjustment? What, what do you feel like put your team over the top? I think that's all I need about. I'm surrounded by really, really good coaches who are committed and were unified. So it rubbed off on the kids and, and the kids started, started to body in and can tell you that they started working really hard. They committed to the conditioning levels. We, we um, and, and we focused on cohesiveness and playing for each other. And we've seen it, you know, it was a struggle, but they just got better every day, but to being the best conditioning team on the field. And I think all of those things attributed to our success. 
absolutely your your team did perform especially in in that championship game that was a huge margin of victory and a, and a very big exclamation point on on the fact that that you you guys were the best team in the division this year football is a very important part of the community in many areas of our country think about what football means to texas and california and florida here in Hawaii, Kahuku is probably the most well-known example that comes to mind. What kind of relationship does Kauai have with football? Well, absolutely. You know, we're, we're, a, we're a smaller island. We have three high schools here, and it's a big deal. We, we have blue, red, and green. And those are the colors of the high school, and some people take it deep for generations. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I can't, I don't want to get too deep into it. Trust me, like it gets really deep. The rivalries, every game's a rivalry. It's very competitive. People have a lot of pride. We've been known to have um, very physical football play here um, on the island that the kids pride themselves with. So, you know, it starts from the youth leagues and, and follows up to high school, but that's all we have here at the highest level. Football's high school, but can tell you people love football and and pretty much everyone's touched by it. As a community, you know, you had people from all schools that were excited that we won. That that was neat. That's neat. So that that's very helpful to have that support. Let's talk about your team a little bit. What I saw was a deep squad that played well as a team. Your offensive line has the kind of size that makes college programs excited. Your defense only allowed 24 points in the six-game regular season, and seven points in the state tournament. One might expect the talent pool on Kauai to be limited. Is there a concerted effort on Kauai to develop talent, or do you kind of just get lucky every so often? <laughs> um, you, we get lucky yeah. sometimes. Um, but we knew there was a talent there. We just needed to get them all interested in, in football. We need to rebuild that and start that effort, like you're saying, that concerted effort to get kids out and interested in getting them playing, learning the game correctly and safely. And, and you know, uh, I guess copying is a sincere form of uh, flattery. But, you know, look at what these other programs and dynasties like St. Louis is, Iraq, look at what they do. Why do they win year in, year out? Why do they win championships all the time? And so... We're trying to work at everybody at the administrative level down to understand what it takes to have these kinds of successful programs. And and, and that leads to uh, opportunities for, for college for kids. And that's our goal. Education is very important to me and to our staff and our program and our administration, obviously. But taking care of that and having success in that as well as football and then getting them opportunities because college is so so expensive and these kids can play number one and then get some some money you know reduced on their tuitions or the scholarships and that helps everybody you were named head coach of Kapa'a just after the start of the pandemic in 2020 what kind of adaptations did you have to make to your coaching style or your coaching schedule to work around the pandemic yeah, I was actually named right before a pandemic, then it hit, and <laughs> it's like no contact. It was some strange times. When we look back, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty, but we actually had zero cases. We shut everything down here, and we should have had football you know, in retrospect because we had zero cases on the island. 
but unfortunately we just didn't know enough about what was going on and and so we, we leave into you know are we gonna have sports can we work out with the kids and then the adaptation is you know from the nonprofit, and then we started the whole uh seven and seven league outside of the league and was able to get some kind of organized sports together that got, got these football guys involved and that kind of saved us to get kids back interested in, in yeah. football. And we had to go out and, and man, shake up the bush and, you know, drag some of these kids uh, back out with football. They're enjoying themselves playing Xbox and what have you. And, you know, what I mean? <laughs> all those things, man, it, it was hard and, and quiet. Some of the wild coaches make comments about, man, yeah, you guys have it tough here, there in Kauai. You kids are like hunting, they're fishing, they're diving, surfing. You know, there's so much uh, outdoor things other than sports for them to do. So that's another competing exercise of sports or lifestyle that, that we have to deal with. But the biggest, man, the, the, the biggest blow came, well, not the biggest, one of the biggest problems. It's like we, we were... We had these kids ready. We just put on a helmet for a day and then they postponed the season and then we had no contact for seven days. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that killed everybody, I think. And then the vaccine requirements and then, then the, then the, then the, oh, you can get exemption. And so I guess we we're trying to figure this out on the fly and having to deal with everything a daily basis, not knowing whether or not you have a season or not and keeping these these kids together and, and interested. And, oh, man, that was really tough. In an interview you did shortly after being named head coach, you said that we can expect your players to be excellent students, perform as a disciplined football team, be good community members, and have fun and enjoy life. How do you feel that your team has done so far? I think it they're successful in all of those categories, definitely. We've got nothing but great feedback on on their uh, conduct in school, the performance um, in classes um, from the administration. Um, I can tell you, they're, they're great kids. They, they understand what's at stake. They understand um, the responsibility of being a student athlete and especially a football player with all the attention that you get both positive and negative, and they're, they're champions and more to football. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. That was Kapa'a High School head football coach Mike Tressler talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Tressler was savoring the moment. His players won the Division II State Football Championship last week, the first ever for a team from Kauai. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we keep an eye on the first cruise ship passengers to arrive in the islands after a two-year pause because of the pandemic. What do you think about resuming this aspect of our visitor industry? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on The Conversation page on the HPR website. Savannah Harriman Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song helped to produce the show. We have John DeMello to thank for our backyard quiz, Oli, and Mahalo to Gypsy 808 for our swinging theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. 
Join us Monday. Pick up the conversation.